Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today we bring you the conclusion of the story of James Fly Williams, arguably the greatest or second-greatest streetball player of all time. And as I mentioned in last week's episode, Fly Williams had talent oozing out of his pores. Very rarely does a player receive the gifts of height, athleticism, quickness, speed, leaping ability, and coordination in the way that Fly received them. And I said this last week and I will say it again. He had Allen Iverson level talent, but in a body that was four inches taller than Iverson. Now, when we left off last week at the end of Fly's sophomore year or second year at Austin P. State University, now we're going to get back into the rest of his story. Now, those that had influence on him convinced him that he needed to leave college early and declare himself eligible for the 1974 NBA draft. Now back then the rule said that a player could not enter the NBA draft until his class graduated from college. For Fly that would mean waiting until 1976 which was still two years away. However the NBA had an exception called the hardship rule. Essentially a player could declare for the NBA early if he could demonstrate financial hardship on the part of his family where going to the NBA would change his family's financial future. It was no secret that Fly and his family lived in poverty in Brownsville. For Fly to demonstrate financial hardship was the easy part. He submitted his paperwork to the NBA and it was accepted. Fly Williams was eligible for the 1974 NBA draft. However, this did not mean that his college career was necessarily over. A player who has declared eligibility under the hardship rule could still withdraw his name from the draft and return to college. Occasionally this did happen, but Fly was the Ohio Valley Conference Player of the Year this would be a sure sign that he was ready for the NBA draft. Now this is where Rodney Parker re-enters the story. In last week's episode, I shared how Rodney Parker was an influential person in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. He was connected and knew every talented streetball player in the city and nearly every Division I coach around the country. He was the go-between connecting players to certain coaches to give these players opportunities to earn a basketball scholarship and go to a university. Parker was aware of Fly making himself eligible for the NBA draft, and Parker wanted to get back into Fly's inner circle like he used to be. Now, this is the part of the story where Fly miscalculated the impact of his decisions and basically painted himself into a corner. Parker was in steady contact with Lake Kelly, who was Fly's head coach at Austin P. Parker thought that it would be wise for Fly to keep all of his options open, even the option of returning to school. But in Parker's conversations with Coach Kelly, it came out that Fly's academic record was under review. In other words, 
there was an investigation into Fly's academic eligibility. Every Division I athlete, regardless of the sport, has to maintain a certain grade point average. If they fall below that average, then they become ineligible in their sport. And that actually happened to Walt Frazier at Southern Illinois University. His grades fell below the average and he had to miss an entire year of basketball while he worked to improve his grades. For Frazier, everything worked out. He was able to return to the basketball team and have a wonderful senior year after which he was taken by the New York Knicks and the rest is history. But for Fly, if he was deemed academically ineligible, then there really was no point in him returning to Austin P. He was simply not a good student. Now, while the investigation into Fly's academic record was happening, Parker advised Fly to not play in any summer pro-am leagues because playing in a professional slash amateur or pro-am league would disqualify him from playing in any more college games. There were pro-am leagues throughout the summer in almost every big city on the East Coast, but NCAA athletes were not permitted to play with or against professionals in any sort of formal competition, and these leagues were considered formal competitions. Of course, Fly did not listen to Parker and played in several pro-am leagues throughout the entire summer of 1974. He played down in Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York. Because of his incredible talent, he was being paid by the game to join certain teams. I mean, he was getting several hundred dollars per game in the summer of 1974, and Parker was furious with Fly because Fly just threw away whatever eligibility he had left to play college basketball. The only thing that Parker was concerned with was that the NCAA did not find out. As long as the NCAA did not find out, then Fly would be able to return to Austin P with no one the wiser. As for his academic eligibility, well, word came back that his test scores were horrible and he was no longer eligible to play NCAA basketball anyway. When Parker talked to Coach Kelly about this, Coach Kelly was not that disappointed in the results. He told Parker that the rest of the team was not going to miss playing with Fly Williams. Even Kelly himself had had enough of the Fly and his inconsistent behavior and lack of dependability. Kelly was not sad to see Fly move on to something else. So at this point, Fly's only option was to keep his name in the NBA draft and hope that he got drafted because college was no longer an option for him. And here is where there is another twist in this story. You almost cannot make this stuff up. Fly started telling people that he was not sure he was ready for the NBA and wanted to go back to Austin Peay University. When Parker heard this, he tried getting a hold of Fly, but Fly was tough to find and was not getting back to Parker. When Parker did get a hold of Fly, he told him in no uncertain terms that college was no longer an option. He had been disqualified because of his poor academic record. Fly had to keep his name in the NBA draft. And of course, Fly being Fly, he was going to do things his own way. Just one week before the NBA draft, he withdrew his name. He told everyone who would listen that he was returning to Austin P. And for some reason, he was unable to accept the truth that Austin P. was no longer an option for him. He was no longer academically eligible. And if the NCAA ever found out that he took money to play basketball during the summer, well, that would have disqualified him too. He was living in his own world. Now, this is just me speculating for a moment. But the question kept bothering me. Why would a player withdraw his name from the NBA draft once he was ruled ineligible to continue playing college basketball? He was sure to be a top pick. He was in the top 10 in the nation in scoring at Austin P. All of the people with any influence in his life wanted him to go to the NBA. It seems that Fly was the only one against it. On the surface, the decision did not make any sense. Something else must have been going on. 
And again, here is where I am sharing what is strictly my opinion. I think he was scared of failing at the NBA level and what that would mean to his reputation back home. Back in Brownsville, he was the king of the neighborhood in regard to basketball. He was one of the top college scorers in the country. His reputation could not have been higher. Something about taking that next step caused him to withdraw his name even when he had no other options. Or did he? Now this is a good place to take a break and I'll be right back with the rest of the Fly William story. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. You know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Welcome back to the show, and let us move on to the conclusion of the Fly Williams story. He had just withdrawn his name from the NBA draft, even though he was no longer eligible to play in college. He had no other options for basketball except to play back on the streets of his old neighborhood in Brooklyn. However, there was another professional basketball league that had been around about seven years, and that was always looking for talented players, even talented players with baggage like Fly Williams. Unlike the NBA, where an amateur player has to formally submit paperwork to declare himself as an eligible player, the ABA did not have a paperwork requirement. At the ABA draft, a team could just say anyone's name, and that player's rights went to that team. So, without Fly having to submit any paperwork to the ABA, the Denver Nuggets selected James Williams from Austin Peay State University. But the Nuggets had no intention of actually signing Fly to a contract. They just wanted his rights so that they could sell those rights to another team. Which is exactly what they did. 
The Spirits of St. Louis were that team. They purchased the draft rights to Fly Williams. Now Fly had an option that fell right into his lap. If he wanted to go professional and make some real money, then there was a team in St. Louis that wanted him. That businessman that Fly had been hanging out with back in Brownsville, Joe Jeffries L., well, he legally became Fly's agent, just as he had planned, and he was set to earn 10% of Fly's ABA contract. In one place, I saw that the contract was for three years at $500,000 for all three years combined. So that makes it about $166,000 per year and some change. But it was often hard to find out how much money Fly actually received. In the ABA, they made a habit of deferring salary out to 20 or 25 years in the future. It was all very complicated and not the point of the story, so let's just keep going. The main thing is that now Fly was a proper professional basketball player. He joined the Spirits for the 1974-75 season, and the team was loaded with talent. They had the great Marvin Bad News Barnes, who averaged 24 points and 16 rebounds per game. Freddie Lewis averaged 23 points per game. Maurice Lucas scored 13 points per game and pulled down 10 rebounds per game. Then there was Gus Gerard and Joe Caldwell, who each threw in 15 points per game. That was 90 points per game just from the five starters. And then Steve Snapper Jones came off the bench for 11 more points per game. Scoring was not this team's problem. So how would Fly Williams fit in on a team like this? Fly was used to streetball where putting on a show was more important than securing the victory. Up until this point in his life, every crowd that came to see his games came to see him, whether it was in college or on the playground. In his very first game with the Spirits, he scored 22 points in a loss to the Memphis Sounds. And in his second game, he scored 24 points in a win against the Utah Stars. And then it started to fall apart after that. He was not playing team basketball. An assist was really rare for him. Just like he had played his entire life, he thought that the best way to score on any given possession was for him to take the shot against any defense. Well, it did not take long for opponents to figure out that Fly was a ball hog. You could just double team him and he would still refuse to pass the ball. He quickly became a liability because he refused to play as part of a team. He just wanted to go one against five on every single possession. The other guys on the team did not care for Fly's style of play. They wanted to play team basketball. That means all five players on the court working together, or at least as together as a team can play when you have Bad News Barnes on your team. Now, Coach Bob McKinnon started to reduce Fly's minutes. Fly could not figure out how to play team basketball, and he also could not figure out how to make a simple play and just get the two points. For Fly, every possession was a chance to show off for the crowd. Now, this is where I need to pause to discuss the difference between streetball and professional basketball, and I love both environments, and there is so much to learn and appreciate about each of these forms of basketball, but they have different goals. In streetball, players become famous by putting on the best show. Maybe that means scoring a ton of points. Maybe that means scoring points in the flashiest possible manner. For other players, putting on a dribbling show like you were a Harlem Globetrotter is how you make your name. But whatever the way, a player makes a name for himself, it is all individually motivated. The final score does not matter as much as being remembered by the crowd. Now, I'm not saying that winning doesn't matter at all. I'm just saying that making a name for yourself as a streetball player can often become the higher priority. Now, in professional basketball, the goal is to win because guys get fired if they don't. 
A losing coach will only last so long before the team lets him go. A player that does not win will get traded or simply not get re-signed when their contract runs out. I mean, if you can score in a flashy way in a professional game, well then more power to you. But as long as a player does not put that ahead of getting the victory. Now this is what Fly could not figure out. He had always been taught to play for the crowd at the expense of the win. He had never been taught proper team basketball, which is why he would walk off a playground court once he had reached his stated goal for points. Now after that first season with the Spirits, he averaged only 17 minutes per game and 9 points per game and 71 games played. There were 37 games where Fly scored in the single digits and several times where he did not score at all. He was starting to wear on his coaches and his teammates. Now, one thing that I have not mentioned in the entire story of Fly Williams is that he was missing several of his front teeth. Now, this is why you rarely see him smile in any of pictures that you might find of him. If he has to smile, he would do so with his mouth closed. The whole thing with the missing teeth became part of the charm of Fly Williams. But the Spirits broadcaster that season was the now famous Bob Costas. He was a very young 22-year-old broadcaster just getting started in his profession. And he once said, quote, Fly is a legend, but he's a legend to a relatively small audience, unquote. And he also had this to say about Fly, quote, Fly's game and his mouth were equally toothless. Unquote. Now, after his rookie year with the Spirits, he returned to Brownsville for the summer of 1975 and got into more trouble with drugs and alcohol. His life was spiraling out of control. What he did not know at the time was that he had already played his final ABA game. When it was time to return to St. Louis for his second season, he found that the Spirits had fired Coach McKinnon and hired Rod Thorne as the new head coach. Now, I'm not sure how well you know the name Rod Thorne. He played for eight years in the NBA before moving into the coaching and executive ranks. Rod Thorne is the man who drafted Michael Jordan to the Bulls in 1984. He later went on to be an executive with the NBA and the general manager for the New Jersey Nets, among a host of other basketball jobs. He is in the Hall of Fame as a contributor and deservingly so. Rod Thorne was an old school coach, even by the standards of the 1970s. He did not put up with nonsense from anybody. Unfortunately, Fly Williams had devolved into a whole bunch of nonsense. Thorne cut Fly Williams from the team during training camp in what would have been Fly's second season in the ABA. Now, Fly Williams had nowhere to go. He was out of professional basketball about as quickly as he came in. He was only 22 years old and he had already washed out as a professional basketball player. He ended up not playing anywhere that year, but he stayed in St. Louis, even traveling on his own to road games to follow the spirits. So what was Fly doing hanging around all season with the team that had cut him? Well, he had turned to his second profession being a drug dealer. He became the primary supplier to the Spirits and any other professional basketball players that he crossed paths with. The word was that he was making as much money selling drugs as he was making as a player, and the drug money was tax-free. Of course, he got the itch to play again in 1976, and he joined a league called the Eastern Basketball Association and led that league with 27 points per game playing for a team called the Red Roses. In 1977, he made it to the Eastern League's All-Star Game, but showed up late. He did not get there until the middle of the third quarter, citing a flat tire. After 1977, he was out of that league too. 
The guy was only 24 years old and he had already been cut from two different leagues. I mean, technically, he was drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers in the ninth round of the 1976 draft, but that was just a lark. Fly Williams was in no shape to actually play in the NBA. Drugs and alcohol were already taking their toll on his life and on his game. If you are familiar with the movie Semi-Pro, then you are familiar with the scene where Will Ferrell's character Jackie Moon wrestles a bear at the halftime of an ABA game. Well, Fly Williams did that for real. In 1978, he entered the ring with a 600-pound bear named Victor as part of an ABA halftime act. Long story short, the bear won. Now this is where the Fly Williams story turns really sad. With his basketball career over, he ended up in and out of jail for various drug charges. When he was not in jail, he liked to try to speak to youth groups about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. So I will give him credit for that, but it was definitely a do as I say and not as I do situation. Inevitably, he found himself behind bars again and again. And when he was in his 30s, he was part of a robbery and got shot through the lung by an off-duty police officer who jumped in to stop the crime in progress. Fly recovered in a local hospital and then went to jail again. Now, having a bullet go through his lung ended his streetball career. He had respiratory issues ever since. Now, even worse, he was arrested in 2017 as the ringleader of a multi-million dollar heroin operation. His son, and his stepson also were arrested with him and all three are now in jail. He is scheduled to be released sometime in the year 2026, when he will be 74 years old. The guy had the potential and talent that others would kill for. He was considered by some to be the second best streetball player of all time, right after Earl the Goat Manigault. But for now, he is just inmate number 18A2578 in the New York Department of Corrections. Like I said at the beginning of part one of this episode, it was bad decisions combined with some bad luck. But we can still appreciate what he brought to the court as a player because when he was on, he was practically unstoppable. Well, that does it for today. That is the James Fly Williams story. Join us next time when we share the story of the widening of the lane in the NBA. It was widened twice, once for George Mikan and then again for Wilt Chamberlain. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the football history dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. 
Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.